Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome everyone to Okie Investigations. My name is Trevor Shelby. I'm an Oklahoman who loves to investigate crimes that's happened in my state and all across the United States. I have a bachelor's degree in criminal justice and a love for true crime. The stories that are featured on this show are true stories. The narrative of each story comes from extensive research through police reports, trial notes, appeals, personal accounts, news reports, and much, much more. Parts of this story may contain opinions and speculations and should be taken as such. For more information on each story, join us on our webpage, truecrime.blog, where you'll see some of the cool things that we've gathered while researching each show. This includes a timeline of events, newspaper clippings, court documents, and a whole lot more. Come and check us out at truecrime.blog and our Facebook page, Okie Investigations. These stories depict violent crimes of all types and may be a trigger for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome everyone to our bonus episode. This is going to be all three parts of the Buried Bodies case, all put together for one part. So if you wanted to sit through and listen to it all together, that's fine. You can do that here without having to go through the intros and outros on each one. Something that I found interesting is this case is pretty similar to what's going on out in Florida with uh, Brian Laundry's case. And, you know, it got me thinking about this and I thought, you know, I really want to put all three parts together and make it just one episode. So without any further delay, here it is. The Buried Bodies case, the Robert Garrow story. Today we're focusing on the victims in this case, which is very important because it's the victims that seem to get forgotten in a lot of these stories. So what I hope is that you all get a very good sense of who these people were and how tragic all of this was. When this happened, lives were not just ended. Uh, Those around them, lives were changed forever. It's hard to describe the amount of pain and anguish Uh, those around the victims 
uh, seem to go through. And as you'll find out, that is a major factor about this case and why it is so controversial. We begin on July 11th, 1973, in Syracuse, New York. Cocorn High School was a pretty active school. They were in their summer session. That year, they would win the Section 3 baseball championships and were looking to be contenders again in the next year. Near the end of the day, a bell rang out. It was the fire bell, and the school was having a fire drill. The students and faculty exited the building, and they all gathered on a hill nearby. When the drill was over, several of those gathered went back into the school. Some did not. One student, Alicia Hawk, decided that she would go ahead and head home for the day. Alicia was wearing a light blue knit body shirt, blue denim bell bottoms, and brown shoes. Her typical route home would include a shortcut through Elmwood Park, but today, for whatever reason, she decided to take a longer route through Glenwood Avenue. As she walked down the street, she was met with a stranger in a unique car. He probably didn't look very threatening, and Alicia got into the car when she was offered a ride. As the hours went by, Alicia didn't come home. Her parents became worried and searched for her. Eventually, they contacted the authorities. Even though this was not her typical behavior and she disappeared with no apparent reason, the police treated this like a typical runaway case in the beginning. As the days went by and no leads came in, Youth Division Chief Lieutenant William Reddy started looking into other possibilities for the missing youth. Two 14-year-old boys had recently escaped from the Elmcrest Children's Center, a home for troubled youth. They were not gone long, but it did fit the timeline of events. The authorities followed that lead, but found no evidence that the two boys ever came in contact with the missing girl. Police also looked into another missing persons report, a 19-year-old girl that was also reported missing on the same night that Elisa went missing. But a few days later, that girl was found safe. This was very hard on Elisa's parents. Her father would stop by the police station and check in and see if there were any new leads going on. And her mother would cry anytime the weather would be bad. She believed that her little girl was suffering out there in the elements. On July 16th, just five days after Alicia's disappearance from the Corcoran High School, another high school student was reported missing. This time it was 15-year-old Marsha Hunter. She was last seen when she left her house for school that morning. The police looked into the theory that the two disappearances were linked, but found no reason why they would be. The authorities believed that the girls were both in hiding, but not together. They put out a statement to the press that if they feared that they were in trouble, they need not worry. Running away was not a crime, and that they could come back without the fear of getting in trouble. But this is not to say that the police had given up on the idea that foul play wasn't at hand here. They knew the route that Elisa 
typically took when she walked home, and it was through a wooded park. Searchers mounted and searched the park with the help of bloodhounds, although they found nothing. Concerned friends of the Hawk family put together a $1,000 reward for information leading to Elisa's whereabouts. Along with this news, Chief Reddy wanted the girl's friends to know if they knew where either girl was, they should call the police right away. They can keep their identity secret if they wanted so that no one would ever know that they made the report. Three days later, Marsha Hunter returned home unharmed. She had simply run away. This seemed incredibly unfair to Lisa's parents. Since their daughter's disappearance, two other local girls had gone missing and returned home, unharmed and safe. As each day passed, they became more and more desperate to find their little girl. They prepared over a thousand posters and put them up wherever they could. The police got Elisa's description out to state officials all over to better their chances of spotting her. Meanwhile, as all of this is happening, on July 20th, 1973, police nearby receive a report of something disturbing found in a gully in the Adirondack Mountains. A man was dead. When the police arrived at this scene, they were met with a puzzling sight. A car was parked, abandoned nearby. The man's body was a hundred feet away, down at the bottom of a gully. They found identification showing that the body was that of 22-year-old Daniel Porter. There was also evidence in the car that he was accompanied by a woman. They soon learned that this was his girlfriend. Susan Pets. The bizarre thing about this was that it was obvious that Daniel had been murdered. He had several stab wounds to the back and chest, and it was also obvious that he had been left in the gully for days. But there was no sign of Susan anywhere. She had not turned up or tried to contact her family or friends. Police began to search around the area, believing that the worst had happened to Susan as well. But they found nothing. And when I say they found nothing, I mean nothing. There was no apparent reason for this murder, besides the fact that Susan was now missing. You see, the two of them were heading in the Adirondacks to go camping for a while. This is how they could be missing for days and no one suspects a thing. Along with that, they brought very expensive photography equipment with them. All of this was still in the car when it was discovered by police. On top of this, any evidence that had been on or around Daniel's body was long gone at this point. There was heavy rainfall in this area recently and water had been running down the gully likely washing away any evidence. Police gathered over 50 searchers, including bloodhounds and helicopters, to search the area, but the terrain was so hard to search. The underbrush was thick and overgrown. The bloodhounds couldn't get a scent, 
and it was just hard for the helicopters to see through the canopy of trees. Everything just seemed to be against authorities in this case. As time went by, detectives had to consider all possibilities in this case. Could Susan have had a hand in Daniel's death? It was worth considering, but when you spoke to those that knew them, it was very hard to believe. You see, Daniel was well-known and liked by his peers. He had worked as a treasurer for the Cambridge Survey Research Organization that conducted polls for the presidential campaign of George McGovern the year prior. Senator McGovern knew Daniel and took a personal interest in this case. Daniel also worked at the Harvard Crimson paper as a photography co-chairman. His former co-worker at the Harvard Crimson, Timothy Carlson, had written an article in the paper on July 24, 1973, entitled Danny D. Porter. In it, he describes learning of Daniel's death and the shock that it brought. He also describes the last time he saw Daniel. He was with Susan, and they seemed like everything was just so perfect. They talked for a while and told Timothy that they were going camping that next weekend, and after that, Daniel planned on doing some serious work on campaigns again. As the days dragged on and searchers found nothing in the area, Susan's parents feared the worst. Each day, searchers made their way into the woods. Each day, they came back empty-handed. At this point, it was hard to say what happened, besides that there was a chance that there was a lover's quarrel, and one, possibly two people lost their lives. Campers continued to enter the Adirondacks, not fearing what might happen. On Sunday, July 29, 1973, Carol Ann Malawinski, David Freeman, Philip Dumblewelski, and Nicholas Fiorilla were all camping in the Adirondacks. Two of the men had left camp and gone fishing that morning. The other two were enjoying the day in camp. A few hours later, a man approached their camp. He didn't appear threatening at the time, except for the rifle he held back out of view of the campers in the tent. When he was close enough, he brought the rifle up and aimed it at the door of the tent. The two campers inside did not see him coming. The gunman ordered them out of the tent, and slowly they emerged, visibly frightened. The gunman seemed on edge. He told them that no one needed to get hurt, he just wanted their gas. But things got a little more complicated when unexpectedly, the two boys who had went fishing had just returned to camp. The gunman quickly ordered one of the campers to tie the others to opposite trees, where they could not see one another. He reportedly told them, I killed before, and I will kill again. When they were all tied up, the gunman produced a knife and stabbed one of the men in the heart. It didn't take long for things to fall apart for the gunman. 
Two of the campers, Carol and one of the surviving men, were able to wiggle free of their bonds and were able to escape on foot. They ran to the road and were able to flag down help. The other surviving camper was taken hostage for a short time, but he was then able to escape from the gunman's car, which was described as a orange foreign fastback. He too was able to find help pretty quick. Now you have to understand, there was already a police presence in this area. They had been looking for Sarah, and now there were reports of another attack. They quickly got the description of the killer's vehicle uh, to the police that were on the search. This proved to be invaluable to the effort. The car was spotted driving in the early morning with its headlights off. Believing that they had their suspect, police gave chase. But eventually, the suspect was able to ditch his car and run into the heavily wooded area. Police lost sight of him quickly in the woods. Now, this is purely speculation because I really couldn't find any rhyme nor reason for ditching at this point. But I think it could be as simple as he was obviously looking for gas. And perhaps his car was already pretty low. So he had to ditch at this point because if he were to run out during a better put-together chase, he would be caught for sure. Police gathered at the abandoned car. They used that as a spot for base camp for the time being. Hundreds of officers gathered from all around the agencies. They had a manhunt on their hands. In less than 24 hours, they were able to make a positive ID on who this killer was. He was Robert Garrow, a man who was well known to authorities as the worst type of human being. He was a serial rapist, already on the run from the law when he didn't show up to court. They made a positive ID from the car that was registered to him, and they showed the surviving victims his photo and they made the positive ID. As police looked more into Robert's past, they found more reason to believe that he was behind everything. In 1961, Robert Garrow was convicted of rape and served seven years in prison. After his release, it was believed that he committed several more rapes on young children. He was charged with the crimes, but did not show up to court. After that, he became a fugitive on the run. One of the first things police put out to the press was they didn't know if Robert was behind the murder of the camper, Daniel Porter. The disappearance of Susan Petz was also a mystery to them. They knew that the ditched car belonged to Robert and that they believed him to be the murderer of Philip just hours before. As police searched the area, those who stayed behind worked with the evidence that they had. The orange car that the killer left behind could contain evidence linking him to all of the crimes. 
they searched for fibers and hairs that may belong to Susan, who had not yet been found. They also looked for rope or anything else in his car that might link him to the other crimes. Now, the police had massed an enormous effort to find Robert in the woods. They gathered bloodhounds, helicopters, and had almost a hundred well-trained officers go into the woods looking for Robert. What made the search so difficult was that it was the same conditions that they searched for Susan in. The underbrush was so thick they knew that Robert had a gun at the campsite, and it was not located in his car, so they feared that he grabbed that rifle when he fled from the vehicle. This would make Robert a very deadly target in this environment. If he was in hiding, they might not spot him until it's too late. And he could shoot one of the officers, so they searched with much caution. Police Major Steinkamp was the commander who was heading the entire operation. The Major got the idea that Robert may come out of hiding if he hears that his family wants him to give up. Edith Garrow and her son Robert Jr. recorded their voices for police, pleading with Robert to give up. This was Edith's message to her husband. Honey. This is Edith. Won't you please come out? Leave your rifle in the woods. I'm here with the state police. They do not want to hurt you and don't want you to hurt anyone else. The children and I want you to come out. Please listen to me and do what I ask. Robert Jr. was recorded saying, Dad, this is Rob here. Please listen. Come out into the open. We don't want you to get hurt. Please come out. Now, this sounds a little silly, but it was a solid tactic. The Major didn't want his men out there searching for a killer who could get the drop on his officers at any point. So this was a way to reach out to him and try to compel him to come to his senses. But this is where I feel like it kind of fell apart. Robert was a man who ran from the trouble he was in just to find himself with many more problems. He was desperate, and that part of his life with his family was the last thing on his mind. About midday, police found what they thought was their first clue. About midday, police found what they thought was their first clue to Robert's movements since he fled from justice. Searchers found a primitive cabin in the woods, it was old, but still a usable place to hide. The officer who found the cabin noticed that recent damage had been done to force entry into it. Officers surrounded the area, and they entered the residence slowly, but they found nothing. However, it did appear that someone had been inside the place recently. Detectives went to the scene to look for fingerprints that could tie Roberts to this location. While all of this was going on, the county district attorney had weighed the evidence they currently had to see if they could charge a Robert with those crimes. 
it was clear that Robert was on the run. He proved that when he didn't show up for court in the rape case. Robert didn't return home, and now not only had Robert been ID'd from a surviving victim, but his car was left at the scene as well. The district attorney knew that he had enough to go forward with charges with the murder of Philip. In time, he hoped that he would also charge him with the murder of Daniel Porter and possibly Susan Petz. Days went by with few leads in this case. Robert seemed to just disappear. They found out that Robert knew how to survive in this environment. He was trained in his time in the military. This was not comforting to those officers who were out searching for him. Officers looked for signs of Susan Petz as well. She was still missing and presumed to have been taken by Robert. But the only thing that they found was a shirt that they didn't think belonged to her and was probably Robert's or something he found, seeing that it was in the middle of the woods in an area that was hardly ever visited by anyone, they thought it came from Robert one way or the other. On August 3, 1973, officers received their first big lead. A traveler who had stopped at a roadside rest stop noticed something odd when he pulled up. There was someone in the distance that was getting into what looked like a homemade tent. This man looked a lot like the person on the run from the law that was in the area. As the car driver pulled up, he intently looked at the structure, trying to see the man inside. They both made eye contact, and the man who was seen in the distance then scrambled out of the structure and ran into the woods. Instead of stopping, the driver decided to go and alert police to what he had seen. Following the lead, officers searched the area. The structure ended up being a lean-to made from tree limbs and was camouflaged to look a little natural. Whoever was inside had the perfect view of the rest stop. If someone had come into the rest stop and slept in their car, they would have been clearly seen from the structure. They also found unspent rifle cartridges. Clearly, they were onto something here. It looked like Robert had set this up as a place where he could get the drop on an unsuspecting driver and steal their car. They had lucked out that he was spotted before this could happen. Unknowingly, the man who spotted Robert probably prevented more murders from happening. With plenty of evidence pointing to Robert's whereabouts, Hundreds of searchers gathered in the area of the rest stop. They believed that he couldn't have gotten far and that they could probably get him surrounded quickly. But things are never that simple when it comes to catching Robert Garrow. As searchers were getting prepped and dispatched in the area, a large thunderstorm moved in. The storm was fierce and made it hard for searchers. The bloodhounds that they wanted searching the area would not be able to work in these conditions. A helicopter couldn't see anything from the sky, and searchers below lost all visibility. 
Robert Garrow was able to disappear once again. This was incredibly unlucky for the officers. They were so close to having their suspect, but the circumstances were just not on their side. Knowing that he had been out of the woods and trying to get on the move, officers decided to keep watch on Robert's family's homes. They held 24-hour surveillance to make sure that Robert didn't try to make contact in person. Besides his wife and son, Robert was very close to his sister, so officers watched her home as well. It wasn't until three days later, on August 6, 1973, that Robert would again be spotted. It was at a gas station in Speculator, New York, where a 1968 Pontiac Temptus with an Ohio license plate stopped for gas. The attendant, who was the owner of the business, was handed $5 for gas, and when she realized that the man behind the car was definitely Robert Garrow, the attendant didn't let on that she knew who he was. She was able to pump his gas and let him go on his way, and as soon as he was gone, she alerted authorities. Now, police Major Stainkamp was not going to abandon his search in the woods on this one lead. He wasn't sold on the idea that Robert could have gotten a vehicle without them knowing. But as they looked into it further, they found out that a 1968 Pontiac Temptus had been stolen in the area. If you follow the trail from where the car was stolen to the gas station, that was nearly 60 miles away, it appears that the vehicle was headed in the direction of Robert's sister's house. To be careful, Major Stainkamp decided to alert the authorities to be on the lookout in the area of Robert's sister's house. They then kept searching in the area that they last saw him. There was a moment the day before when they thought they had spotted him when a man came out of the woods carrying what looked like to be a rifle, but when they tried to approach, the man went back into the woods and could not be found. They were not entirely sure if it was Robert or not that they had spotted. The next day on August 8, 1973, the stolen 1968 Pontiac Temptus was located just down the road from Robert's sister's house. Officers confronted and searched Miss Charlie Mandy's home. When asked, she confirmed that Robert did, in fact, come to their house that morning. It was dark out, and he was able to sneak through the back door without alerting officers. She stated that Robert was unarmed, but no one really believed that statement. He had his rifle in the woods, and it was not in either car that was left behind. She said that he did not stay long and didn't want to involve anyone else because they too could get in trouble if found providing aid to him. It was at this point police decided that they could no longer trust Robert's sister. Even though she did willingly give them information, she didn't provide it until asked. Robert had apparently been gone for hours, 
and the officers were right outside her house. She could at any time come out and told officers what had happened. Detectives camped in the area of Miss Mandy's home to see if they could catch Robert coming in for another visit. On August 9th, officers saw something suspicious going on. Robert's little nephew had just left Miss Mandy's home and was heading into the woods. He was carrying something in his hands the whole time. Officers and detectives followed the boy at a distance, and this paid off when the boy led them straight to Robert's hiding location. Robert was caught off guard when officers arrived. He was ordered to stand down, but he refused. Robert began to run further into the woods, but officers opened fire and shot him with four blasts of a 12-gauge shotgun before he could get far. Robert fell and had fractured his arm. He had wounds to his chest, back, and legs. But despite all of these injuries, he was alive and no longer on the run. Officers helped take Robert out on a stretcher, ensuring that he stayed alive to answer for his crimes. As Robert was on his way to the hospital, officers also paid a visit to Miss Mandy's home. She discovered that she should have listened to her brother about not getting involved because she was arrested and charged with hindering prosecution. Now, with Robert in custody, officers have their first chance to question the man that they think killed three campers in the Adirondack Mountains. Authorities rushed Robert to the hospital. He had been shot several times and had been severely wounded in his attempt to again flee from justice. He was taken to the local hospital where doctors could stabilize and keep him alive. As doctors treated Robert's wounds, detectives were patiently waiting for a chance to question him. You see, at this time, Susan Petz was still missing. They didn't know if there was a chance that she might still be alive just held captive somewhere. The only clues that they had been working with at this point was the evidence located in Robert's car. They found several hairs that might be Susan's. This case predated DNA testing, so they would have to compare other things about her hair to see if it matched Susan's. Finally, just 24 hours after he was caught and brought to the hospital, detectives have the chance to question Robert Garrow but this proved to be almost as difficult as searching for him in the thick woods. You see, Robert was acting on the advice of his attorneys and refused to answer any of their questions. Police senior investigator Henry McCabe found it infuriating that they could not get anywhere with the questioning, but expected this to happen. Anytime they tried to question him about the murders or Susan's disappearance, Robert would close his eyes and just pretend he was somewhere else. While all of this was going on, Robert's attorneys were arguing in court that there was no chance for Robert to get a fair trial. Because of the extensive news about his case, it would be nearly impossible to find a jury who didn't already know about Robert's past crimes. 
they feared that he would be judged unfairly in this case. This was a real problem for the defense in this case. You see, to receive a fair trial, Robert would only need to be tried for the crimes he was being accused of, which in this case is the murder of Philip Dumbleweski, and not the pending rape charges Robert was fleeing from in the first place. It is a fine line for the judge to decide what is fair to be told to the jury and what is not. On December 9, 1973, a body was found roughly one mile from the spot where Robert Garrow was captured. At first, the police believed it to be Mel because the body was severely decomposed. But after examination, it was found to be female. Not only that, it was the missing woman, Susan Petz. Her body was discovered in an abandoned mine shaft, apparently shoved in there to hide her body from anyone passing nearby. As the days and weeks go by, Robert slowly heals from his wounds. He has a setback when he contracts pneumonia, but he soon recovers from that as well. As he is encouraged to get up and move around, Robert starts to complain that he's now paralyzed. As doctors look further into this, they can find no reason for this to be happening. More tests are done and the doctors continue to see no reason for the paralysis. Nevertheless, the trial goes on. After weeks of jury selection, the trial began on June 10th, 1974. The defense wanted to start things off with the most potent witnesses they had, Nicholas Farella and Carol Ann. They both had different perspectives of the day when Philip Dumblewelski was brutally murdered. Nicholas was just returning from the fishing trip when he found Robert Garrow's ordering Carol and David out of the tent. Carol testified that she was tied up to a tree and that when Philip and Robert were just out of sight, she heard Philip let out a scream, which was followed by a gurgling, vomiting noises. The follow-up by the defense was to try and get the witnesses to admit that Robert appeared to be a man out of control, that he was perhaps not acting on his own free will. This insanity plea would be their strategy going forward. They can't really argue that their client did not commit the murder, but they can say that he was not in his right mind when it happened. Over the next few days, the prosecution brought Dr. Jack Davies, who testified to the stabbing. He stated that each stab wound was not a killing blow, and that it was likely that Philip suffered a great deal when his body was left to die. They then showed the jury the photo of Philip's dead body. They also brought in Betty Baker, who testified that Robert Garrow visited her gas station when he was going to his sister's house. Robert's sister testified that Robert came to her house and watched news reports about his flight from justice. He gleefully talked about how he was one up about how he won up them by getting a stolen car. She denied that he admitted to any killing while at her house, but Robert knew that he was on the run from the law. When the prosecution rested, the defense threw their Hail Mary right away. They called Robert Garrow to the stand. First off, Robert didn't hold back when he brought up the recent crimes that he was being accused of. He testified that he was mentally having a breakdown. 
He had stopped on the side of the road and was trying to think and clear his head. That's when a man and a woman approached him. He stated that he remembered getting into an argument with the man and they started fighting. They rolled down a hill and he pulled out his knife and hit the man with it over and over. He then forced the woman to go with him. For three days, they camped together. He stated that they slept together several times. And then on the third day, she tried to grab his knife. He took it from her and stabbed her. She died. He decided to hide her body in a nearby mine shaft. It was then he admitted to another unsolved murder. At the beginning of the story, we spoke about a missing 16-year-old girl named Alicia Hot. Robert Garrow testified that while driving down the road, he spotted her, took her, and killed her. He then described the day that he came across the four campers in the Adirondacks. He stated that he was bewildered and panicked about what was going on. He didn't want to hurt them, but when he tried to tie them all up, Philip resisted and he stabbed Philip to make him stop. But what was probably the most historical admission during this testimony was that he told his attorneys about these murders after he was captured. They were able to go out and verify that those bodies were indeed there. They took photos of the bodies, which they later state were destroyed so that no one else were to find them. This outraged the state's prosecution and the public. These attorneys knew where the two bodies were and told no one. But the attorneys cited that they were told this information and was under client-attorney privilege and could not disclose it. This would be greatly argued further after the trial was over and was sidelined for now. Robert also testified that his upbringing was not typical for a child in any sense. His father gave him to a farmer when he was seven years old. For the following years, his entire life consisted of farming. He had no friends, and when he was a teenager, he explored sexual fantasies with the livestock. When he became an adult, he left the farm, but only found work on another farm. He soon began to have sex with their livestock. It was around that time he met his wife and had a child with her. He would go on walks at night, but it was not for exercise. It was only to look for victims to rape. He targeted young girls that couldn't fight back, and that's when he was caught and sent to prison the first time. After his release, he began looking for victims once again. When the case was handed over to the jury, they had to decide to either find him innocent due to insanity or guilty of the crimes. They believed him to be sane during the murders and found Robert Garrow guilty for killing Philip Dumblewelski. The judge sentenced Robert to a prison sentence of 25 years to life. After the trial, they then explored if the attorneys did anything wrong by withholding the location of the two missing women. One attorney was indicted for his actions, but the case was quickly thrown out. At this time, client-attorney privilege was not a standard in every state. This case set that standard for the attorneys to go by. This is why this case is still taught in law schools today. 
Robert would continue to feign his injuries to get reassigned to a better prison. When the first opportunity arose in 1978, he escaped after his son snuck a gun to him in prison. Robert was seen climbing fences that would have been impossible if he had actually been injured and paralyzed. There was a large wooded area nearby, and Robert was again able to escape with no trace. The search for him this time was only for one day. When he was spotted, the officer shot and killed Robert when he refused to give up. I hope you guys enjoyed the story of the Buried Bodies case. Robert Garrow was a monster in every sense of the term. It's not often that we cover crimes that are this big, but actually Robert is one of the lesser known spree killers of his time. Most of the time when people are bringing up this case, it's due to the attorney's actions and not so much Robert's. So it was really nice to go in and do a deep dive on this story. I will be releasing a bonus episode that will be the entire story, all three parts, put into one. So if you'd like to hear it with no breaks in between, uh, you could do it that way. And we also have all of the information about this story, little extras on our website, truecrime.blog. Make sure you check that out. Lots and lots of newspaper clippings on this one. We've got timelines of events and all kinds of stuff. So make sure you stop by there. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe. That really helps us out a lot more than you know. I'm really excited about some of the next stories we have coming up. So I hope you guys are subscribed. So when they come out, you will be the first to know. I will see you guys next time. See ya. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.